John McClane battles terrorists at Dulles Airport, then has to save the United States from cyber criminals. Special guests Dom Monfrey and Darren from Board Games Are For Losers join us to chat about the benefits of naked calisthenics, steampunk baggage claims, and rating ads for PDAs. Then we find out if Die Hard 2 and if Live Free or Die Hard stand the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the blood Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello everyone and welcome to the second of our three episodes of the Die Hard Trilogy. This is the Test of Time podcast. I'm James Brief and joining me as always is my buddy and pal and the director of these episodes, Mr. Alan Noah. Hello, that's me. And it's a trilogy of our episodes, even though we're talking about four movies. Uh, And I'll explain how we're working all that out soon. And coming back to the show after joining us last week to talk about the first Die Hard are our friends Dom Monfrey. How's it going? And Darren. Hi. Well, I, I'm so glad we're back. Um, this movie taught me one very important thing, that being Die Hard 2. Okay. Before you do anything important, it is very key that we do naked calisthenics. So everybody stand up. Okay. Take off your, well, Al, your clothes are already off. Uh, <laughs> and let's stretch. Okay. Well, I really uh, wish you had read the email that I sent before we started recording, which said, please do your naked calisthenics before you arrive at the Test of Time recording studio, <laughs> i.e. James's apartment. Sorry. I mean, if you need to do some naked stretching, that's fine. We'll just start the episode while you're stretching. I, I think the doctor would advise that naked stretching is appropriate and elongates your life. I mean, what's the benefit of doing it naked? You have that's- absolutely no restrictions in your movements. Circulation. Oh, okay. Getting an all-over tan. <laughs> and finally, fifth appendage. Uh, You're stretching your penis? No, you swing around. You got a fifth appendage to swing around to that bad guy. Oh, I guess. Okay. But today we're talking about two movies, Die Hard 2 and Live Free or Die Hard. Now, I am a little sensitive to this because I think you called me out on it, James, a million years ago when we talked about the movie as good as it gets. Maybe you didn't call me out on it, but you mentioned how a lot of people will just sort of say the phrase, oh, I'm so OCD because I do something or other. And it's like, no, that is not what obsessive compulsive disorder is. And in that movie, you see what that disorder more accurately looks like from Jack Nicholson's character. I do not have obsessive compulsive disorder. However, doing movies out of sequence is really bothersome to me. And I don't like that we're doing it. But I also said that we should do it. And the reason is, is that I think you were, James, a little bit butthurt or disappointed, depending on your preferred term, that we didn't do Kingdom of the Crystal Skull and we only did the Indiana Jones trilogy. Is that fair to say? (laughs) <laughs> my butt hurt a lot after you told me that. Okay. And this is why we do naked calisthenics. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo, Darren. 
I mean, uh, that, I'm that, leaving. That was a good callback. I mean, it was only a couple seconds later, but whatever. Um, Tip of the hat to you. Still, that that was well played. I was originally just going to have us do Die Hard, Die Hard 2, and Die Hard with a Vengeance, and you were like, oh, we're not going to do the fourth one. I think we should. And I was like, okay, fine. I, I took away Crystal Skull. I will allow us to do Live Free or Die Hard. I really sound like I'm on a fucking power trip here as I'm telling this story, don't I? I think that it's actually a testament to how far you're willing to go to not watch Crystal Skull. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> fair. But, I mean, I, I was okay to skip Live Free or Die Hard, but I really did want to do a separate episode for Die Hard with a Vengeance. And I do think there are some thematic elements that tie Die Hard 2 and Die Hard 4 together. So that's why we're doing it. For everyone out there who loves Die Hard with a Vengeance, we will do that next week. Come back for that episode. But I think it maybe will work the best this way to go out of sequence. So if anyone out there has fake OCD or real OCD and this is bothering you, my apologies. It's bothering me too. But let's just go for it. And we're going to start with Die Hard 2 because that would be really crazy to start with Live Free or Die Hard. Uh, We'll start the episode with Die Hard 2. And um, this is also a Christmas movie, just like we all agreed last week that Die Hard was a Christmas movie, right? Yes, you all said yes, you all nodded. We did not. <laughs> oh, oh, I you're, don't remember. You're grossly misrepresenting the situation. Uh, maybe. The Do three you... of us uh, said it was, we admitted it took place during Christmas, but we did not feel, because of our definition, that the themes were not central, that they were uh, Christmas, and uh, it, it could not be replaced in any other setting, and it, could, it would not change the film. I'm, I'm not going to even acknowledge admitting it took place during Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fucking weird. But um, in any event, this movie, like Die Hard 1, takes place on Christmas Eve. John McClane is at Dulles Airport waiting for his wife Holly to arrive, but terrorists once again get in the way of their reunion. This time, disgraced U.S. Colonel William Stewart is attempting to secure the freedom of a Latin American general. To do so, Stewart takes control of the airport's tower, runways, and communication systems, meaning that no passenger planes, including Holly's, can safely land. McClane tries to work with the airport police, but is forced to work alone as he sabotages Stewart's plan. So, James, this had to be a box office hit because they made three more Die Hard movies, right? Yeah, you know, I was actually recently watching uh, on my YouTube uh, rabbit hole, randomly uh, behind the scenes on Predator 2 came up. I think it was probably some feature from the DVD that randomly ran on YouTube. And the uh, producers and director were talking about how they got to do whatever they wanted on Predator 2 because 20th Century Fox was not paying attention because apparently all of their uh, thoughts were on Die Hard 2 because that was going to be their big film. That was going to be the number one film of the year. And I find it ironic because we talked about last week about how no one had ever heard of Bruce Willis really outside of, you know, maybe if you watch Moonlighting and he wasn't even on some of the posters in the beginning. You know, now, by now, in 1990, he's one of the biggest uh, action stars in the world. And uh, this film did well. It opened on on July 6th, 1990. So another film that takes place during Christmas, but released in July. This film was... uh, uh, number one, uh, opened with $21 million, and it was number one for two uh, weeks, uh, eventually uh, finishing off with $122 million domestically, so 50% more than its predecessor, $240 million worldwide, so that was really big. 
But interestingly, uh, the film was not nearly as big as uh, 20th Century Fox had hoped. It was not number one. It was not even top five. It was actually the uh, eighth biggest, uh, seventh biggest film of 1990. The number one film of that year is the film that knocked Die Hard 2 off of the top of the charts in its third week. And it was a film directed by the director of Airplane. Titanic. That's James Cameron. Ghost. That's correct. That was the number one film of the year. But the number one 20th Century Fox film of the year was a film that came out of nowhere. And this is a classic film. And it is definitely a Christmas film. Home Alone. You got it. Yes! Very nice. Right. Just like Die Hard 2. You keep calling this a Christmas movie, but nobody calls this a Christmas movie. There are so many movies that take place at Christmas. Lethal Weapon takes place at Christmas. People don't talk about that as a Christmas movie. But they could. They could, but they don't because it's not a Christmas movie. Or is it? Yes. Uh, (laughs) Yes is the answer. I think the really important thing is you guys are mispronouncing the name of the movie. It's not Die Hard 2. That's right. I, I, I was gonna I was gonna say something to Al later, but I think all of our listeners are itching because Al's uh, you know obsession with saying the correct film. Well, what is it, Darren? Die Hard Two. No colon. Die Harder. No, that's not correct. Damn it. Sorry. The it's hyphenated. Mo- no, the movie is called Die Hard Two. The tagline is Die Harder, oh, and in really? later subsequent re-releases, then they kind of retconned it to be Die Hard Two. Die Harder, but the official title Mm. of this movie, when it was released in 1990, is Die Hard 2. That's it. I want to make a a thank you to Dad right now, because I know Al was waiting for that. (laughs) Al was waiting for me to correct him, and he was going to let me go. He was going to let me go on. Oh, I'm just eating this up, and the more you talk, the better the payback will be. So thank you, Darren. So, so I Jamesed it. <laughs> Somebody had to. You took the James <laughs> Boo, that's not what Jamesing means. Well, you did also jump on that train, and you thought that it was also called Die Harder. Um, and there is a lot of common DNA between Die Hard 2 and Die Hard. Uh, I mean, not that adding the subtitle Die Harder would have really changed that in any way, shape, or form. But there's just a lot of commonalities. It takes place on Christmas Eve. It's about John McClane trying to rescue Holly. There's terrorists involved. I guess the big differentiator is that in this movie, it is a bigger plot. The stakes have been raised. There are many more lives at stake because there are all of these planes in the air. And Dom, I'll ask you first. What did you think about that? Did, did you appreciate that the stakes were raised? I thought it was interesting that it was really to secure the release of basically Manuel Noriega. Right. So like it was a very clear stand-in for politics at the time. It made it a little more cartoonish to me how much higher the stakes had been raised as far as the airplane, the ho- that hostage situation. Okay. Darren, what do you think? Uh, it, it's really where it starts to go off the rails for me. It, it's, it's so overly complicated. The stakes were raised too high. I get the idea. Like it can't just be a simple heist in a building, but it just went too far. And this is going to factor into what I think about the movie, but that's the main problem. It's, it's just, it's overly complicated. Maybe you guys can tell me, what is their motivation for freeing this guy? 
I was gonna ask you that. I'm really glad you brought that up. I was worried I missed it. Did did you get it, James or, or Dom? I assumed it was money. I assumed these guys were hired by him. It's not quite said, but I, you know, I guess you're right. I, I just never quite heard of it. I assume it was the money. So money was definitely involved, but the idea I think is that they felt so betrayed by their country as the stand-in for the Iran-Contra affair. They're going to release this guy. He had this money because he had embezzled it all from the country. And so he he's you know a billionaire and can just give them money later. Right. There, there's one line where the general says something to that effect of like, you will be rewarded for your efforts or something. But the motivations are very, very murky considering these guys are committing treason, right? Like this is high treason against the United States. They are killing American civilians and government workers and cops and people commit treason. That's a thing that happens, but you kind of just want to understand the why of it all. Last week, we talked about how Hans Gruber was likable. We talk about this, the colonel, I don't remember his name, Colonel. Uh, <laughs> colonel he, Stewart. Colonel Stewart, thank you. Sure. We talk about Colonel Stewart. Uh, allow me to compare to another movie now I recall reviewing with you guys, okay. that being the uh, universally loved The Rock, right? <laughs> so you have a similar bad guy there in the general that he feels aggrieved that the country has not paid out uh, money to fallen soldiers. He commits treason, which is, I think, wrong. No, I know it's wrong. Okay. <laughs> he is likable. You're not rooting for him. You're not necessarily rooting against him. But in this movie, the motivation is murky, and he's not likable at all. You do not. There's no reason to commit that level of treason and death for the cause they're trying to support. It just flew off the rails for me. And we know The Rock is great, and we know that the, the villain is like, well, there, it does not work here. I mean, when you say we, you're talking about yourself. Universally, we, everybody in this room. Three people on this podcast agree that The Rock stands the test of time. No, 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 no. That movie is garbage, and it always will be. <laughs> I mean, there is one bad guy I do like in this film. Um, that's the character played by John Amos. Uh, he's this guy, Major Grant. He's a, a surprise bad guy. He's a, he's he's likable. He's even like, hey, McLean, I kind of like you. And this is something that's been talked about, uh, especially today, Marvel films, and but just in general, a great bad guy villain. It just makes it so good when you agree with him, when the logic is there. Okay, it's a robbery. Okay, you have all the steps planned out. Here, you're right. I don't quite understand it. Uh, but, but then again, I do like John Amos almost in anything I see him in. William Sadler, who plays the Colonel... You know what his other most famous role is, or do you? Uh, some sort of fitness video. No. <laughs> <laughs> he is uh, death. Yes, that's right. He is death in Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey mm -hmm. and Bill and Ted Face the Music. Can I ask you something, Al? Yes. Uh, you're famously known for hating voiceover. Mm. How do you feel about the exposition here in that it was just TV monitors in the background as kind of explaining the background? What, what is your take on that? I mean, I... Definitely, I'm more okay with that than voiceover. It requires you to be paying attention. Probably when I saw this movie the first time, I wasn't paying that much attention. Mm -hmm. And, you know, watching it for the podcast, I definitely am. And my ears perk up because I'm trying to pay attention to what's being said by the anchors in the background. It's fine. It gives a lot of information that's really not helpful, uh, to your point about understanding the characters and their motivations. The exposition that bothered me more in this movie is when McLean is talking to the 
cop at the airport who's towing his car and he's like hey listen you can't tow my car i'm an nypd cop but now i live in los angeles because my wife holly is on that plane and she's coming to visit because her her parents are here in washington dc and that's why i a new york cop who is now an la cop is here in washington dc like he gives like a whole monologue about what's happened in between die hard and die hard 2 to this guy who's giving him a parking ticket and it's all for the benefit of the audience but it was really fucking clunky. Can I talk about something else that's bullshit that happened between Die Hard 1 and Die Hard 2? How the hell did a judge grant William Atherton's character a restraining order uh, against uh, Holly? She punches William Atherton's character at uh, Thornburg at the end of Die Hard 1 and in Die Hard 2 the characters return, they're both on an airplane and the backstory is that he successfully got a restraining order against her. That's bullshit. There's no way a judge would do that, especially after this woman just saw her boss killed. She was held hostage, almost thrown out a window. Like, I mean, come on. And she punches the guy who was the reason that she was put in danger. I mean, unfortunately, I can see that. I can see that happening. It wasn't that unbelievable. Again, I think we discussed this at the end of the episode last week about is that story really even necessary as part of this plot and, and moving this one, uh, Die Hard 2 forward, not Die Harder. Um, hmm. No, but I, I can see it happening. They, they would grant a restraining order for that. Uh, unless we there's a backstory that McLean, uh, the Holly, has a lot of assaults on the record. And the judge was like, ah, this is not the first time. Don't play that PTSD. <laughs> what, the last stri- seven This is strike too? five. You're going down. <laughs> exactly. So, all right. If we create that backstory, maybe. But I, I thought that was bullshit. That's fair. And this movie uh, was released two years after Die Hard, and I guess it takes place two years after. They never really give a number to it. doesn't really matter. But they talk about the 90s a lot (laughs) in this movie. And they're talking about the technology of the day where John McClane has, get this, guys, a beeper. And Holly beeps him, get this, guys, from the plane. And I remember those phones on planes and when they were new and I remember using it because there was like a thing where you could use it for free. And so uh, my sister and I called one of our parents, I don't remember which, when we were on the plane flying from uh, New York to LA or vice versa. And the conversation was completely pointless because it was so goddamn loud. You know, all the all the person heard was just, you know, the the background noise. So it wasn't really that great. But they're talking about microwaves and faxes and all of these cool new gadgets that we have here in the 90s and talk about clunky fucking dialogue. And, and don't forget the worst line of all when McLean gets the, uh, the fax from the rental car counter that, mm-hmm. that has the fingerprints back of the uh, bad guy that he killed and the woman's hitting on him and... He says, no, just the facts, ma'am. And that is a line that I barely even knew, but it's from Get Smart, right? Is that? No. No, what is it from? Dragnet. Yes. Yeah. So, God, that was awful. (laughs) And I only know that it's a Dragnet reference because I used to love the Dragnet movie and I've never seen a single episode of Dragnet, the TV show. I thought it was great when they were like, faxes, wake up and smell the 90s. And... It galls me that we still have fax machines now in 2023. Because yeah. if somebody asks me for a fax now, I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't. It's 2023. It's not 1990 anymore. Yeah. Th- does that happen to you regularly? More than you'd think. It happened to me not that long ago where I needed to 
send a form into uh, my daughter's school. And they were like, well, you can fax it. And I was like, no, I can't. I can email it, but I can't fax it. Come on. I mean, there's tons of websites to send a free fax, but uh, we use faxes a lot in medicine. It's really weird. But, um, you know, I see this a lot. We've reviewed a lot of films, and at the beginning of set of decades, people will say this a lot. I'm an 80s girl. It's the 90s, Dad. And people go, it's the millennium, dude. Like, it, people would say this a lot. I, I think people get a little excited, but uh, it, it's definitely a thing that I saw a lot at the beginning of every decade as we reviewed films. Oh, I believe you have a special way of saying millennium. <laughs> oh, that's a deep cut for like seven of our friends from high school. Uh, that was very, very funny if you were with us on New Year's Eve from 1999 to 2000. But to your point, James, people say that in movies, nobody fucking says that in real life. And that is what makes the dialogue super, super clunky. Um, but Darren, you were talking uh, last week about the incompetent cops of Die Hard 1. And so we have to have the similar conversation here in Die Hard 2, I guess notably because one of the annoying jerk cops who just gets in John McClane's way is Dennis Franz, who would go on to play Agent Sipowitz on NYPD Blue and I assume other roles, but I can't think of any. I don't think so. I think he was basically Sipowitz. And that's how I knew him. Um, so what, And I watched a lot of NYPD Blue. So I love seeing him in this role. I think where this differs a little bit from the incompetence is it's not buffoonery. Right? Mm-hmm. So he's not a buffoon. He is what you see in cops. He's territorial. He doesn't like this outsider being there. And rightly so, this guy who's now in the LAPD for whatever reason, he's not supposed to be doing investigations in his airport. This is his territory. His character is good. I I think he's one of the shining stars here because he's playing Sipowitz. He's angry. He's funny about it. But he's not a buffoon. He winds up being wrong a lot of the times. But it's, it's because he's being a cop. He's being what what we expect him to be. But it didn't bother you that he was doing such mental gymnastics to avoid making McLean right? Like, McLean's clearly right, and we know that as the audience, but he's like, oh, maybe it was someone um, 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 stealing luggage that had a machine gun. No, because you, you got to understand, like, this guy drew his line in the sand, and he's now, it's his territory this happens, right? This was believable to me. Um, you see this, that in the face of all other evidence, like, well, no, I'm not having that guy come in and tell me this. This outsider can't come in. That happens. And as much as it's like painful to watch, it's more realistic than any of the police portrayals, besides maybe Powell in the first movie. I like that a lot better. You know, the bad guys are basically taking over the air traffic control system. That's how they are able to hold basically all the planes at bay. Did you find it believable? Like they tapped in, they set up, you know, they, whatever they did, I don't know what they did, but they set up in that church and they set up the system, they tapped the line and now everything's done. Did, did, was it believable? Was it not believable? I don't know anything about air traffic control or airports or, I mean, I know a little bit about airplanes, I guess, but <laughs> I don't know how this works. Uh, like if you told me that you could do this, I'd be like, that's terrifying. And go along with it for the movie. 
Um, I happen to have been friends with someone who was, uh, for a long time, really trying to be an air traffic controller. I do know it's an insanely stressful job. If uh, you saw the plane maps, the U.S. plane maps over Black Friday this year, I mean, there were, it's in, the entire country is covered in airplanes. I don't know like the technical details, but I like the fact that air traffic control is enough like techno babble that I go, they have thousands of thousands, tens of thousands of lives in their hands at, at any moment. I, I think that it was the techno babble that just kind of made me go along with it and shrug my shoulders and be like, okay, sure, because I don't understand any of it. I did appreciate the fact that they were at an outpost, you know, like at this church that's just outside of the airport where they can set up a, a whole command center. I did like that. I think it would have been annoying if they were on some abandoned wing of the airport or something where wouldn't somebody go to check it? Um, there, there were two things that kind of bothered me more about it. One is that they have so many lives in their hands with all of these different airplanes and sort of like we were talking about earlier with like, you know, the, the stakes being raised. I get it. That's what you do in a sequel. You raise the stakes. I didn't feel like the stakes were raised. And I think Die Hard, the first movie, does a really good job of putting you in that group of hostages. It's a small group of lives that are threatened, but you feel it. You feel the panic that those people must be feeling. And in this movie, there's, I don't know how many airplanes up in the sky. You only see one other flight and that's right before it crashes and it's just five seconds of these British people talking and it's like okay I'm just gonna get to know these people right before you kill them right well we know that these people are in danger they don't right so they don't have a gun to their heads they think they're just circling the airport that's true and, and we just don't spend any time with the characters the one thing that I think does work with the heightened stakes is in the first movie when Ellis dies and then McLean's like a little sad about it, it's like, well, that guy was an asshole and he put himself in that situation. In this movie, I love how McLean goes and tries to save the plane and he's the only person who tries and he fails and that hurts him. And that you feel, I, I felt that. I felt that pain of like, he wanted to save them and he tried desperately and he just couldn't. But the, the other thing that bothers me about the whole airplane and taking control of the command posts and everything is that the reason why the bad guys crash that plane is punishment. Because the rules that the colonel establishes are you cannot try to contact the people in the plane. If you do, I will know and I will kill people. And then they try this other tower and it doesn't work and it's a trap and they all die and that's why he, he does that. But then later on in the movie, the other guy, like the guy who's helping McLean, who works at the airport, he's like, oh, wait, there's this other way we can radio to the planes. And then they do it and it's completely fine. <laughs> and the bad guys don't know. And they could have written that better of like, oh, we couldn't have done this thing before because of techno babble reason. Right. And they just don't. It's just like, oh, well, here's another idea I just had. And that works perfectly. That's basically a plot hole. The engineer, he does mention that this new system, this tower, it's like just, it's either just about to go up or it, it was just decommissioned or there is some throwaway line why the terrorists could have overlooked it. It could have been better. Uh, I agree with you there. 
Um, I will say one more thing about the airplane plot that really bothers me is just kind of how stupid uh, the the other planes are. Uh, like how stupid their situation is. I mean, they should have said some reason about why they couldn't just go to Baltimore or any of the other military bases around Washington, D.C. Uh, I mean... If Holly's plane crashed from running out of fuel, I mean, how stupid is that? Yeah. He's going to fly to Baltimore or he's going to fly south, uh, wherever you need to go. I guess they said something about the storms were bad, but I, I don't know. I mean, you got 350 people and air traffic control is not talking to you. I feel like these guys would maybe even figure there's a terrorist act or something. There has to be a protocol and you'd fly somewhere else. Yeah, they even say up front like, oh, we're going to send all the other planes to the other airports that have enough fuel. These are the only planes that have that have not enough fuel to go elsewhere. But yes, Baltimore is like 30 miles away. Uh, Philadelphia is 60 miles away. And there's military air. And they circled for two hours. So they would have had time to fly anywhere. And they kind of use the excuse of the snowstorm. But then there's a plot hole because how would the terrorists know there's going to be a snowstorm that would shut down, I guess, the other airports? It's... It's stupid. It's a plot hole. Also, Ronald Reagan Airport, which is well, they, in D.C. they did say that was closed because of the weather. The weather's bad there, but not at Dulles? Correct. Um, I don't think you know how weather works. I clearly <laughs> don't. Or the screenwriters don't. Um, because that could have been written in of like, oh, this storm, we weren't anticipating it, but it's actually helping us because of blah, 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 blah. Sure. But, you know, they had to do it this day because they were flying this general from, uh, you know, Central America or whatever on Christmas Eve for some reason that also doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. There's only one day you can do federal extradition, Christmas Day. That's true. Why is that? Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I just also think that the stakes on the plane were were all so silly. I I don't really like the Thornburg guy. Uh, He's on the same plane as Holly. There's a little comedy with that, but... I don't think Holly needs to be in this film. McLean's motivation is not really just to save Holly. It's kind of to stop the terrorists. And yeah, Holly will be a bonus. But I just didn't really feel that Holly's life was ever in danger. I felt like the pilot should just land the plane. Speaking of returning characters, what did everybody think about Powell coming back? I, I liked seeing him. It's a, it's a friendly face. Apparently, he's only in like that one scene or two scenes because he was very busy with his other job. The thing he's probably most famous for... Uh, or maybe he's equally famous for Die Hard, but uh, working on family matters, that was taking up a lot of his time, so they could only get him for uh, a few minutes of screen time. He's also fourth build uh, in the movie, which good for <laughs> wow. Reginald Bell Johnson, you know, like way to go. Uh, but he's just there to have another familiar face from the first movie. I'll just say, I don't know if any of you guys have seen uh, this uh, animated series on Amazon called Invincible, but they go to Reginald Vell Johnson High School, <laughs> okay. and the principal is Principal Winslow, looks just like Reginald Vell Johnson, and who voices Principal Winslow? Reginald Vell Johnson. So... I'm always good with some RVJ. You add some of that, it just makes your TGIF better. So the airport second in command, what's that guy's name? The guy who knows the radios. Oh, the engineer. Engineer, right. So the engineer engineer figures out where the uh, bad guys must have set up their um, hideaway because 
of the fact that they have to have been able to tap into a certain wires in order to take over the, the air traffic control. I actually like that because it made sense. Hey, these guys must be on this block. They have to be there. And so they go out there, they locate them, and they phone it into the military unit, who we later learn, of course, is working with the bad guys. Right. They figure that out really quickly, really easily. Also, back on the plane, Thornburg is able to tap into that hidden message that the engineer is able to get back to the planes because his cameraman has some kind of gear or something that he's like, oh, can you listen to what's being said in the cockpit? Sure, I guess so. And he turns a little dial and then is instantly in and he figures it out like, huh, that's weird. It almost sounds like the tower isn't there. Like, how did you figure that out in one second? Guy who works in television and also knows how airport control towers work? You worked in television. You could do that, right? No, I definitely (laughs) couldn't. And no one could. I mean, if you plug something into the wall and nothing turns on, is your first instinct, the power plant is gone. Right. (laughs) That is the equivalent. You're right. Yeah, that's it's ridiculous. Right, right, right. There is a hint in that scene you're talking about that Grant is a bad guy because when uh, McLean is giving the location of where they're held up. Yeah, he grabs that paper instantly. He's like, okay, we're on our way. And he's also deliberately trying to keep the information away from the other guy on their team who isn't with them, who's yeah. like the, the, the villain. Yeah, the new guy because someone was called in sick or something. Appendicitis. Appendicitis, Appendicitis. Yeah. Right, okay, fine. So, you know, he has to kind of uh, pull that away. The whole thing with the, the ammo, the blue yes. tape and the red tape... I kind of just remembered that from having seen the movie before. Did you think that was clever? Was that a hint the first time you guys saw the movie? Do you remember? I did not notice seeing it. I actually thought it was kind of clever uh, that that, that they had blanks and everything. There's a point where John McClane wants to prove to everyone he's figured it out. And he goes, oh yeah, watch this. And he pushes Dennis Fran's character back and just starts firing 50 rounds at him. And it takes like five or six Mississippi, while Franz is like, no, holding his hands up, I don't want to die. Uh, after five Mississippi, goes, oh, as McClane's still firing, these are blanks. This is in the middle of a police station. <laughs> right. He would have been shot, entire magazines emptied, which they should have, uh, b- before he uh, fired, you know, more than a millisecond. This actually also helps me think about all of the bullets fired in this film, how... He is dodging bullets in midair on a snowmobile and all these things. There's no way he could do it. And then, oh, they're blanks. That actually makes the rest of the movie make way more sense. Fair. Also, all of this is happening in an airport. And in a post-9-11 world, airports are on high alert at all times. And if something is happening, like someone firing a machine gun, even if it's filled with blanks, you know, like in the the first encounter that McLean has with the bad guys, shots are fired. Yes. I mean, if that happens in an airport now, that airport is shut down instantly. I mean, you, you hear about like airports shutting down over phoned in threats now. It is a test of time thing, you know, pre 9-11, post 9-11. It just doesn't make any sense. There was gunfire in the baggage claim right outside that door. Nobody says anything. Even like the cops are like, eh, no big deal. It's probably just somebody stealing luggage. No, there was a gun battle in an airport. They do explain that the guy, the bad guy had smuggled in a plastic gun or something like that. It, it yeah. wasn't 3D printed. but he, he called it, a, it's a Glock. 
these can't be picked up, which is completely false. Right. Like uh, there there are plastic parts to it. Right, but, right. But they but, but they the ammo isn't that plastic. It wasn't you weren't just allowed to walk into the airport with a gun, so he wasn't allowed to have it. Likewise, there shouldn't be gun battles in the airport. They just kind of like, eh, no big deal. People are shooting. Nah, nobody cares. Did you see how big this baggage claim area was? It was like a mile long. It's apparently steampunk. Steam everywhere. <laughs> like, are they powered by steam? Did I not know that they needed turbines? I don't understand. Well, you clearly already d- demonstrated you don't know anything about airports and air traffic <laughs> controllers. So, yes, it all is steampunk. Let's talk about the big fight scene, the climactic ending of this movie. I believe that it is local news that Thornburg works for and that uh, McLean is able to catch a ride on their chopper, right? I mean, is it national news or local news? Do they say? It's not Thornburg's news. It's the local DC news or whoever's there. But it's it, it's separate from Thornburg. Thornburg works in LA. Right. Oh, oh okay. I, th- yeah. I thought they were affiliated. They were colleagues or whatever. But the media in general. Sure. I mean, I guess my point is, is that... Local news doesn't have a fucking chopper. Are you kidding? It's DC. Every New York yeah, has choppers all over. News for New York chopper. 1010 Winds used to have a chopper. I think now they do other stuff. Used to. That's well, my point. Now they have drones. But I mean, of course they had choppers back then. Right. Even in The Simpsons, Artie Pie in the Sky. Right. Used to. <laughs> I'm talking about from a test of time oh, perspective. Okay. No local news has uh, a chopper now. You think DC mm. local news doesn't have maybe. a chopper? Uh, maybe. Maybe major markets like DC, New York City. That kind of leapt out at me where McLean looks at the news person and is like, ah, oh, you're with the local news. You must have a chopper. I feel like today that would not be a given. That 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 was my point. Sorry. That was a long-winded way of getting there. Um, but the bigger thing is that they have this fight. McLean beats up, you know, the the one general, then the other general on the wing of the plane, he grabs the handle, which releases all of the fuel by shooting it out. Right, from the wing of the plane. (laughs) Right. Again, we don't know anything about air travel. Uh, That can't be right. I know enough about air travel. No, that's not right. I mean, that seems pretty wrong. And then he lights a fire... And the fire travels along the the route of the spilled fuel and goes up. The most ridiculous ending I think I've ever seen in a movie ever. Um, you know, jet fuel, maybe, that stuff is so flammable, maybe it maybe could do something like that. The problem I have is I don't think the flame travels faster than a speeding plane. Okay. That's, I think if you had a continual spray going down, I feel like I would not stand on that wing because you are super in danger. But yeah, the plane's about to take off, and from like half a mile away, he instantly blows up that plane. I feel like I read that there was a Mythbusters or something where they tried it and they debunked it, and they said especially because of the wind and you know the Rain. weather and everything. No, it just looks fake it looks bullshit and seeing the flame kind of like jump up as it climbs up it's really fucking so bad it's so bad it's still fine enough for me because i have no idea how it works and i feel like all you need is the tiniest single spark and i kind of like the jump of the flame okay but i just find this death so anticlimactic i think this movie has two of my favorite deaths in all of movies there's a there's a scene uh at the church earlier where um mclean's down and and he takes an icicle and shoves it in the guy's eye why the eye oh my god how else are you gonna 
pierce someone with an icicle, not necessarily anywhere else. It's it's the smartest move to make. And it's then I also think Grant's death, it's it stood with me for years. I mean, yeah. those jet engines are terrifying. He's going toe-to-toe with Grant on the wing, but it's not believable that he should be able to beat this guy. And I like the fact that Grant dies by being sucked into the jet wing. And I think that's really cool. I also love the fact that Sadler beats the shit out of him, and he should. If Bruce Willis, John McClane, was able to beat up uh, the uh, colonel, that would have been unbelievable. And and I like that he was... uh, I I like that part of it. I just don't like the fact that they all blow up at once. It's it's so anticlimactic, and it's not as fun as Hans Gruber being, uh, you know, dropped down the 40th floor. And then they follow up the plane blowing up with that providing enough light to land the remaining planes on the runway that's just not believable like that that flame is the now the landing lights yeah the yeah. landing lights and all the pilots are like oh cool we can do that no you probably can't it's not gonna burn for that long but, but even if it burns for that long that means that there's a broken plane in your way <laughs> that's right? true yes right and then as soon as that first plane lands which is holly's plane they all instantly get out <laughs> and it's like well don't fucking get off the plane onto this one little strip where the other planes can land this is not the right time to deplane we get it you want off the plane but you gotta wait i will say that adding 20 minutes of runtime to show them taxiing appropriately is probably <laughs> not the best filmmaking technique but i haven't read that book you have i mean fair yeah i i think you're you're right and i get it from dramatic purposes but let's jump ahead to Live Free or Die Hard. James, you want to give our listeners a recap of that movie if they haven't seen it? Sure. Uh, in this fourth Die Hard film, which came out in 2007, a group of cyber terrorists led by hacker Thomas Gabriel, they attempt to destroy America's infrastructure. And after their initial attack, Gabriel orders the death of several low-level hackers, including Matthew Farrell. John McClane saves this guy, Farrell, and brings him to Washington, D.C., There, they start fighting back against Gabriel and his goons. After McLean kills Gabriel's girlfriend, May, Gabriel kidnaps McLean's daughter, Lucy. And to save Lucy and the country, McLean needs to combine his beat-em-up skills with Farrell's tech skills. Right. And this movie was also a big hit when it came out, right? Oh yeah, this was uh, this was the fourth film in the franchise. A number of years since uh, the third film, A Die Hard with a Vengeance, which we'll review next week. But this film came out on June 26, 2007, and it opened at number two uh, with 33 million. It lost to a rat. Who is that? Ratatouille. Ratatouille, right? And uh, it opened at number two with 33 million, wound up uh, making $137 million domestically. So that's like a four times multiplier, not bad. It made $388 million worldwide. This was a huge hit. Uh, Did it do that with the name Live Free or Die Hard? I highly doubt it was called Live Free or Die Hard internationally. It wasn't. Internationally, it was called Die Hard 4.0, which. I get because it doesn't really translate. It is a very American phrase. However, Live Free or Die Hard is a great fucking title. And I read today that uh, Bruce Willis and the director, uh, what's his name, Len Weissman, right? They both prefer Die Hard 4.0. And I'm like, why? Live Free or Die Hard is so much better. But Die Hard 4.0 ties into the movie. Live Free or Die Hard perfectly ties into the movie, too. It's about the 4th of July. This movie is a 4th of July movie. Is this a New Hampshire movie? It's not. That's the only thing. It doesn't have 
a single scene that takes place in New Hampshire. They don't even really reference New Hampshire. So that's a little bit of a missed opportunity. But as a 4th of July movie and an action movie, it's both, it does work as a title. Okay, so this is the post-9-11 movie. We were talking about how Die Hard 2 is pre-9-11, and this movie is very much in the world after. We, as Americans in the entire world, looked at terrorism differently. What did you think about this new approach to uh, terrorism and counterterrorism? Well, so I think they didn't take the low-hanging fruit, which would have been to make the terrorists Arabs or Middle Easterns. I like the approach here that they're cyber terrorists. It was early enough on in the computerizing age that you could just kind of be like, oh, I guess this stuff could happen. This is, what, 2007, right? Right, yeah. A lot of it's believable in the theory. Like, we don't know a lot about it. I I think I liked the fact that they took this approach. They made it a technologically-based terrorist group not al-qaeda not you know arabs uh, not having to do with planes i liked it i thought it played on a lot of fears that we kind of collectively had it we went into the year 2000 right y2k was a big thing yeah you know we were worried that all of the things that would happen in this movie would happen if we didn't get everything updated right right and kind of speaking to what we were talking about in die hard 2 about the murkiness of the bad guys motivations In this movie, you get more of uh, Gabriel's backstory and why he wants to do all of this. It still didn't really land for me. It felt like he was bitter because he got fired and like his bosses yelled at him. So he wants to destroy America? That that seems like a leap, right? No, no, I think think you're looking at it wrong. I think his story is believable because it happens. It's it's the smartest guy in the room. It's it's the Edward Snowden story. He was trying to warn, like, we shouldn't do this, we shouldn't do this, or or in in this case in the movie, you gotta protect our systems. It's not, it's not run right. Everybody ignored him, so he's like, you know what? Screw you, I'm going out on my own. And it really wasn't about revenge against the government. That was his cover just like Gruber's was, to steal money. He was going for the money, and that's what it ultimately was about. The Snowden is a, is a good point. Um, it just feels like a really big leap where you're going to kill a lot of people and be really okay with that. It's extreme, and yes, that's what terrorists are. That's what terrorism is. I get it, but I just felt like the A to B to C was kind of missing some some meat on the bone, you know? The terrorist plot, uh, the, the bad guy's motivation, I thought was fine. I think Justin Long's character, I, I think he's a very good foil. I, I happen to really like Justin Long. Uh, I haven't seen him in much lately, but uh, he's well cast for that role. You know, he used to have kind of those nerdy roles. Uh, you know, nerdy, but not too nerdy. It seems like he's a little hip and he can kind of go toe-to-toe with uh, Bruce Wallace. I think he's a decent actor, too. So uh, I, I liked him in this role. I liked the character. I think it was a good choice. I agree. Um, I just don't like the premise in which John McClane becomes involved in this whole thing. It doesn't make any sense. He's he's in New Jersey. The FBI gets hacked, right? That's the yeah. original. And so it's like three in the morning. They're like, go round up a thousand hackers in the country. It, it doesn't work like that. But OK, so let's believe that for a minute. Um, McClane gets the call while in Jersey to go pick up the guy in Camden, transport him down to Washington, D.C., it's completely out of the realm of possibility. but th- So this is how he's introduced. I just think they could have done that better. It was just so out of the realm of possibility that it was hard to even 
get engaged in the movie after that. Didn't they even say that it was 3 a.m. and like he was on his way yes. home? Yes, he, he said it was 3 a.m. and he was like basically he was in New Jersey to follow his daughter on on her date and it just like oh he gets a call from his boss. Well, I know you're in New Jersey because I have LoJack on you. Go to Camden now. Drive this guy down to DC without a warrant. You just you're going to take him without his consent. John McClane's character is supposed to be a wrong place, wrong time guy. In this film, he's on duty, he's following orders. There's so many reasons why John McClane will bump into this uh, Matt Farrell character who he has nothing in common with, and then he'll get intertwined into his story. I agree with you, Darren. It's a little convoluted. To me, I don't really know how these procedures work, so to me it was like, okay, I guess they're hitting the panic button and they're getting local police involved. I could see how, yeah, it's not really realistic. And you mentioned Lojack, which they talk about like, oh, we know where you are. How do you know where I am? Well, your car is Lojacked. <laughs> and kind of like in Die Hard 2 when they're talking about, hey, look at this new fax machine. They kind of spend a little bit of time with the word Lojack in this movie. And that's not fucking impressive anymore because we all <laughs> carry GPS trackers in our pockets or purses or whatever uh, you carry your cell phone in. I don't know if they use the word OnStar, but that's also in this movie where uh, the airbag deploys and then the car starts talking of, you know, the, the emergency person in the dashboard. Did they say OnStar? I'm not they sure. They did not. Okay. But, like, that technology was a really big deal then and isn't really that important or impressive anymore, again, because we all have cell phones. I also didn't really understand how that worked, like the OnStar equivalent, like after they've shut down the power grid and the cell phones and the satellites and no communication works except OnStar. Right, it was an advertisement for OnStar. Well, then they should have said the fucking brand name. I mean, that's how ads work. Well, I mean, oh. they didn't shut down a satellite. Satellites don't power down. They're powered by solar power. Well, they said that they've turned them off or something. Okay, that's fair. But it, you do make a good point that it's even worse that they say LoJack because it's not the same as fax. Because they're going to be talking about faxes forever. If you make a film that you can make a reference to an 8-track tape. And I don't know what eight, how 8-tracks eight work, but uh, I know they're a thing from the 60s and 70s. But LoJack's a brand name. Yeah. It's like even the fact that they didn't say OnStar, I think is actually better because, all right, people are going to figure in 30 years, they're not going to know it's OnStar. They'll figure it was a, a Bluetooth uh, cell phone or something. Right. They do also refer to a cell phone at one point as a PDA, uh, which I wrote down from a test of time perspective. That's what they were called then. What was it? A personal digital assistant? Yeah, or I think yeah, so. I think yeah. so. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I always thought that that was a weird acronym because I remember when that meant public displays of affection. And so when someone said, oh, let me grab my PDA, it's like, you're what? You're making out with your girlfriend or something? Did you ever have one? I don't think I ever did. No, I think I had a slide out uh, cell phone that had like a QWERTY keyboard. That was a big deal. In, I loved that. Yeah, in 07. Sidekick. I think it was an LG. Mm. But um, no, I mean, I remember when like the Palm Pilots were new. I remember a friend of mine saying, this is going to change how people work. And I remember at the time being like, okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, it, but it was pretty awesome. When I had it, it was really cool. On my way to class, I could answer emails. I could read my emails. I could read uh, a bunch of newspaper things that I downloaded. I could reply to all those emails, not uh, wirelessly. When I finally went back to my dorm and plugged in and pressed the sync button again, it would send what it was. It would update all those newspapers. I described it as your computer when you're between computers. 
Ooh. Oh, you should have written an ad for uh, PDA. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that I didn't, and maybe that's why they didn't work. Maybe. Mm. All right, so I got to ask you guys about the the plot. I want to make sure I understand the terrorist plot here. Okay, so you have, what's the main guys? The main hackers? Gabriel. Gabriel, okay, thank you. Gabriel basically recruits the hackers, including Farrell, to develop this sort of code. And, and the whole goal is to enact this fire sale, right? And the yeah. fire sale is this idea that, you basically control the, uh, the the traffic grid, the the banking system, and then the power grid. And, that's and what, phones. And yeah, phones. communication. Right. So it's yeah. kind of this three-part plan, right? Okay. So, four-part plan. Sorry. So I get that aspect of it, and they're starting to enact it. Gabriel's goal is to break into that facility in Woodlawn, which we later learn is the National Data Administration. Something right? like that. Yeah. yeah. And that they have a backup of all the financial information. They did that because of something that they they started backing up all the financial information he's trying to break into there they're able to do so by physically going to the facility yeah they didn't need the other stuff right they didn't need the fire sale to happen in order to be able they physically went to the facility they didn't actually hack it right right okay the, the, the fire sale was to get everybody doing other things so that they had time to do what they okay to do. so so the fire sale the purpose was a distraction because I thought they made a reference when they were starting to download the data that they needed almost like the bandwidth to be able to do it. Yeah, I think it was part of the fire sale, and I, I forget which, and I literally just watched this movie yesterday, so I, I'm embarrassed and I forget some of the details, but some aspect of one thing or two things that they did triggered the download. So they had to do certain parts of it in order for all of the financial data to be downloaded to Woodlawn so then they could go to Woodlawn and put it on a drive. I don't think they needed all of the things, like the blackout and, you know, like completely destroying the entire country's infrastructure. Like, why do they need to knock out power on the West Coast? That seems unnecessary. That seems like overkill. Well, I think the plot is the same as the plot point of all the Die Hard films in that the terrorists always have a diversion that gets the uh, law enforcement distracted somewhere else. But the plot is always robbery. It's just money. But you, you did say something in the fire shell triggers the data being downloaded to Woodlawn. That yes. They did say, They're okay, being able yeah. to. Yeah. gotcha. So, so if they hadn't done the fire shell or parts of it, that data would never have gotten backed up. Right. Okay, that actually helps because I missed that part of it or I thought I heard something and I was like, well, why did they go through all that? It didn't make sense. They could have just done the anthrax scare at Woodlawn, which is how they were able to infiltrate it, stolen the data without doing the all the other stuff. That actually makes me feel a little bit better about it. Well, fine. But I mean, I think your overall point is still valid that a lot of it seems unnecessary and the motivations of the bad guys are just a little off and the motivations of McLean I think are off in this movie in that he makes some not just bad decisions and I think in in the other Die Hard movies sometimes McLean does the wrong thing and that's fine protagonists do that in movies all the fucking time but in this movie he makes really really fucking stupid decisions and sometimes it like kind of works out for him. I'm talking specifically about when he kills the helicopter. He is in a tunnel and he has eluded the helicopter. He makes a joke about it after the fact that he runs out of bullets. So he had to use the car to kill the helicopter. Ha 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 ha. LOL, LOL, LOL. But like 
He's driving in the cop car, in the car that he knows the helicopter pilot has identified him in, could have taken any other car from this tunnel, and he drives straight towards it while the machine gun is firing. The guy in the helicopter has a machine Mm -hmm. gun. McLean knows this. He's driving towards it. The fact that he's able to hit a ramp and drive up is pure fucking luck. Otherwise, this is a suicide mission. That doesn't even make sense. If he was like, this is my plan. It's crazy, but it just might work. You could say, okay, he's off his rocker. But yes, let's assume that somehow by magic, protection, guardian angel, whatever, this helicopter does not shoot him dead. This has like a 0% chance of working. He's not even aiming for it. He's aiming at the back of a toll booth and hoping. Right, He says this is not a good idea. Yeah, no, you haven't had a good idea for a while. I'm too old for this shit as he jumps out of a car. No one's old enough to jump out of a car. (laughs) What are you talking about? Well, no, there is a sweet spot. (laughs) (laughs) But also, while the guy is firing the machine gun into this tunnel... There are a lot of other fucking people in this tunnel that are going to be shot. Also, John McClane is a cop. It says right on the cop cars to protect and serve. He's not helping any of these people. There have been multiple fatalities and people who are horrifically injured. And the cop on the scene who caused this indirectly, you know, it's not his fault. But like, he's just like, oh, I'm going to go get revenge on that chopper guy. Shouldn't he be... Helping people? He saves the day. Right. By luck. I mean, I think it's more by superhero tactics. Uh, There's actually a famous line in the the office when uh, Michael Scott has a weird moment of lucidity and he's talking like a normal person. And he's talking to everyone about how in Die Hard 1, he's just a regular cop who happens to be the wrong place, wrong time. But in the fourth film, yeah, he's taking out helicopters with a car. Um, I will say the fact that he took a cop car did make sense because that's easily going to be the fastest car in that entire garage. One thing I like about this movie is that, like we were talking about the German being gibberish in the other movies, here they all speak in their own language. One guy's speaking French, one guy's speaking Italian. They're all just talking back and forth to each other as if they have babblefish. Like, they they all understand these languages, but respond in their own. I found that kind of fascinating, but I appreciated that way more than, than the terrible German. Right, right. That's fair. Also, not only do these characters speak multiple languages, but all of the bad guys, the henchmen, the villains, they're all super fucking good at hacking and know how to hack, you know, these government systems. And they're crazy fucking strong and good at martial arts. And I can believe that. I can believe that there are people who have both of those specialties, but like those... Both seem pretty fucking time intensive, you know, like that's going to require a lot of time and effort to be a next level hacker that can hack into the DOD. Eight hours coding, eight hours swords, then you have eight hours to sleep. Right. And Maggie Q is great in this movie. But when when McLean goes after her, that's another example of him doing something really fucking stupid where he he like he hits her with the car, she hits the ceiling, she goes through like multiple glass windows, and then he drives into an elevator shaft. At this point, you're like, okay, there just has to be an elevator thing in the Die Hard movie. Of course. But, like, it's really fucking stupid. He could have slammed on the brakes at any point. She would have gone flying, broken her back. The end. Yeah, why would you crash into the wall? Just, you see the wall coming, right? Stop. Then she hits the wall. Then there's an elevator shaft. 
Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, like, then when he's, like, bragging to Gabriel about how he killed his girlfriend, that, to me, is, like, the other kind of mistake, where that's an error in judgment, and then there is a consequence, because then Gabriel goes after his daughter. So that is McLean making a poor decision, and it comes back to haunt him, but a lot of the poor decisions are just like, eh, it's fine. He makes a lot of references to Maggie Q being Asian. He's like, yeah, her hooker Asian ass. You're going to have to get yourself another Asian uh, bad guy. He says it a lot. <laughs> I'm like, I thought it was weird. Yeah, there's a lot of misogyny and punching down there and like just don't. You don't have to. It didn't add anything. It just makes you look like a douchebag. I feel like I maybe have said this in other movies, but like you want there to be equality and yeah john mcclain should be able to punch a bad guy who's a female it just looks bad it doesn't look right and i i don't know it just kind of made me a little squeamish and of course he doesn't directly kill her you know he has to he hits her her with a car but 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 that's not what kills her the fatal blow is not mcclain's fault Actually, she had a heart attack before she fell. <laughs> she died of natural causes. Oh, right. It was, it was just her time, coincidentally. So, one thing, there was a great line here. We have to go see the warlock. Anytime any of you need to see me, please say to somebody around you, we need to go see the warlock. What if, and I'm just asking hypothetically here, what if I tell you that I said that to someone else, <laughs> but I never actually physically say it out loud? That works a thousand percent. Okay, I always do it, Dom. Every time I go to see you, I say to whoever's near me, I'm going to see the warlock. We need to see the warlock. They oh, okay. They can't see you blinking. You get it. No, <laughs> I, I will never do that. The Kevin Smith thing is fine. I feel like it's kind of a, a cameo for a cameo's sake. It felt forced to me of like, oh, well, let's put in this guy who is known for being a nerd as a nerd in our movie about nerds. Get it? I thought he was great. Kevin Smith, he doesn't act often, but when he does, it's good. You know, Silent Bob, by definition, says maybe one line of film. I think he says one line in every one of those films. But uh, Kevin Smith, you don't see too much of him as an actor. I think when the rare times you see him, I I actually like him. I thought he was well cast in this role. Mary Elizabeth Winstead was also in this film, which I did not remember at all. And I was like, oh my God, Ramona. Yeah, I love her. And she she is great in this movie. Let's talk about this movie's climax, where after uh, McLean killed a helicopter, he kills an F-35. <laughs> I don't think you can kill an inanimate object, but yes, I get what you're saying. But he does! <laughs> he does! He kills the F-35 while the F-35 <laughs> is trying to kill him. And someone, the mayor, the authorities, has urged everyone in Washington, D.C. to abandon their cars. It's a quick line, but so that way, when the F-35 is shooting at this abandoned highway, ah, it is an abandoned highway. Yeah. It's still ridiculous. Yes, of there, course it is. At what, at what point are you like, I'm going to thread this missile between these two highways to hit this truck? That doesn't make any sense. It is painfully fucking stupid and frustrating. The air quotes justification is that before that, McLean says, get my my daughter back. Whatever you have to do, do it. But he's saying that to the, the good guy at the FBI. But the only reason he got in touch with the FBI was because he needed to talk to the warlock. And he got patched through because he remembered uh, his CB ham radio. Code. Yeah, CB radio code. And then the F-35 is firing at him. 
why doesn't he pick up the CB radio and once again call the warlock and say, hey, my friend at the FBI, tell the F-35 to stop shooting at me. And the reason is because it's more fun to watch John McClane <laughs> kill the F-35, but it's really fucking stupid. It is. I'm still hung up on the F-35 attacking in this way. It's not bound by anything. It doesn't have to follow the highway. It can come from the side. There's right. nothing there. There's water. Just hover sideways. There you are. Dead. Uh, and then he finally catches up to Gabriel, and he shoots through his bullet wound to kill him. D- does that make any sense? James, you're a doctor. I didn't even know he shot through his own bullet hole wound, but I just love I love this kill. This is my yes. second favorite kill in the series. Yippee He doesn't say it because it's a PG-13 film, and I thought you're allowed one F-bomb. In a PG-13 film. I think that you are, but he does say it. You just can't really hear it because of the gunshot. Well, it's purposely muffled because it's PG-13. Right. And uh, he shoots and uh, Gabriel's killed. And I like that Gabriel, who's supposed to be a real smart guy, and Timothy Oliphant being a great actor, there's a look on his face like, oh, fuck, I fucked up. And I I really, I like this death. It was much more satisfying than uh, any death since Hans Gruber. I thought it was great how, I mean, a couple of things. One, Lucy, who was so real for this, told him how many people were there. She said, there's five of them left, Dad. Right. But there are six. That's why he gets shot. Because right. he's like, I've taken out all these people. It's just you left. And then this guy shoots him. The the henchman that shoots him looks around like, oh, my God, I can shoot him? Right. <laughs> Have we been trying this? This worked great. <laughs> the miscount is not necessarily a plot hole. It's because when they get to that hangar or facility or whatever there's another guy waiting i wasn't suggesting it was a plot hole but a a character mistake that ended up costing him but ended up weirdly giving him the win right i think they forgot to count the plane (laughs) (laughs) as one of the remaining bad guys (laughs) right i agree with james and i thought i was wondering what you guys would think about the death i thought it really harkens back to bruce willis in his original role in the original die hard being cunning Versus the -the over-the-top action hero, which he had been the entire time, the mostly stupid action hero in this movie. (laughs) He used cunning to beat the bad guy, and I thought it was really cool. I liked the death in this movie. Okay, so let's go around and we will see if Die Hard 2 and Live Free or Die Hard stand the test of time. Dom, you went first last week, so Darren, you get to go first. Oh, boy. Start, start with Die Hard 2, I guess. Okay. Did we talk about that one today? We did. Uh, okay. <laughs> uh, this is going to be a hard no. And I, I just will, for the record, reflect that is my first no ever on this podcast. Hey! hey. I'm Congratulations. Just, I'm just doing it just to get a no in. Um, what doesn't work for me is the fact that the motivation is very unclear. We talked about why are they rescuing this drug dealer? Yeah, it's probably for money. They don't say it. They kind of make an allusion to it. They're putting so many lives at risk to rescue this guy because, right? Yeah. Um, like you said, you have to amp up the the stakes. They do, but you don't feel it. Um, yeah. The action gets cartoony. Dom, you referenced McLean is able to avoid bullets by slowly rolling through the annex in the airport and just slowly rolling in a long roll that somehow it's just it doesn't make any sense really the only redeeming quality i thought of the second movie was sipowitz or the the airport (laughs) i just like his character um no it doesn't work for me it was just it took what the first made the first movie good 
and took everything away that was good. The villain was not likable, was not relatable at all. You had to see his bare ass. No, it doesn't stand <laughs> the test of time. Okay. What about Live Free or Die Hard? Oh, okay. So I had a tougher time with this one. I was originally an easy no until you guys actually clarified the plot for me, that that, that the idea that they had to do the fire sale in order for the, the, the data to be downloaded. So I get that. But in talking it over, I realized, again, it, it turned from McLean being the everyman to him being an over-the-top superhero that makes really dumb decisions, that fights a helicopter, <laughs> maybe with his bare hands, I don't know. <laughs> it, it was it was over-the-top violent. Uh, you know, that didn't work for me. The terrorist plot itself was okay. I like, you know, I could understand the techno babble, like, hey, this is a fear we all have to live with. I liked it. That's why I was on the fence. But when it comes down to it, again, it took everything that was good, the everyman hero from the first episode, and made him just cartoonishly violent. The only clever thing he did was really shoot through his own shoulder. And, and for that reason, no, it's, it's not going to work. Okay, so two no's. Two no's. Dom, what do you think? Die Hard 2 was much better than I remembered it being. I was actually really impressed. I did think that some of it was stupid and that, as we were saying, you start off with him as a human being and then there's like a straight, you know, 45 degree angle line right up to him being God. Yeah. And like, there's certainly an amp up, which is what we expect in sequels. You know, the stakes were raised. There's more stuff going on. It is not a very good diehard movie, but it is still a pretty good action movie. I think it's, unfortunately, one of the better action movies that, that's out there. I mean, there are a lot of ones that are way worse than this. Wow. So this isn't like, you know, this is a binary choice, but this is like a 51 percenter. Like, I will say that it does stand the test of time. Okay. What about Live Free or Die Hard? If you could take out the F-35, if you could take out the helicopter, and hitting Maggie Q with a car. Okay. <laughs> if you take out those three scenes, I think it's a really good movie. I think it's actually based on fears that we have as a society. I think it could be easily remade to be a much better film. Sure. Keeping the same plot, keeping even most of the same beats. You know, just take away what's cartoony about it. I, I, I enjoy parts of it, but it doesn't stand the test of time. Okay. This is also my first now. First yeah. nose together. All right. Way to go. It took you however many episodes to get here, but okay. Um, James, what do you think about Die Hard 2? Um, I love how he escapes with the ejector seat. I think that's really cool and clever. And we never see ejector seats used in, uh, in movies except as an ejector seat. I, I think it was a really clever way to escape. Uh, one thing about this film that really bothers me, I, I think that they had to establish the stakes of this bad guy. I find them crashing the plane. Uh, you hit it, Al. It was... I didn't know anything about those passengers, but, like, 300 people just died. And I like that McLean is upset, but I'm not as upset because I don't know who any of these people are. I care much more about 40 or so random people in Nakatomi Plaza because I see the fear on their face. Uh, it didn't work for me. But I guess it somewhat fits the tone of the film that it's a real dark film 
And, you know, I mentioned last week about how none of the diehards, except for the fifth one, was actually written as a diehard film. So uh, what you said uh, just now, Dom, that was interesting that uh, Die Hard 2 may not be a great diehard film, but you think it's a, a great action film. And I find it interesting because since none of these films were actually written as a diehard film, what the hell is a diehard film? It's, it's really hard to define this, but I think a diehard film has to be fun. The second film doesn't have much fun in it. On the airplane, Holly's airplane, I don't like anything on there. Another weird thing in this film, there's a lot of references to the fact that a lot of people know who John McClane is. They're like, oh yeah, yeah I know you, your whole Nakatomi thing. And the reporter's like, oh my god, that's John McClane. And it's, it, there's no payout to that. I sort of agree with you, Dom. It's not a bad action film, but I, I just didn't find it fun. So for me, uh, it doesn't really stand up, I guess, as a, as a test of time, uh, for, as a diehard. Now, the fourth film, I like the general plot of it. I think it's, it's probably the most uh, uh, relevant of any of the plots uh, of any of the films. The middle parts are just a lot of like sequences that I can't even remember a bunch. I know there's something in uh, Matt Farrell's apartment and, and just endless and nameless bad guys, but there's there's some subtle touches. The, the cast, I remember the part where all the hackers, uh, the Timothy Alphonse, like, all right, time to go, guys, and everyone gets up and they just murder all the hackers and. Everyone's a turncoat. Everyone's just a robber. So I kind of like the, the the ruthlessness of these bad guys. I found this film to be kind of a fun action film. I don't know if it's a great John McClane diehard film, if you can define one, but I found this film to be more fun. And I was having a little more fun. I don't think it's a fantastic film. I think it does stand the test of time. A lot of faults with it. So for me, Die Hard 2, no. Die Hard 4, yes. Uh, what do you think, Al? Okay, well, I think you said something really interesting there about what is a diehard movie because they're all adapted. And it's a really good point. My counterpoint, though, is that Die Hard 2 really, really feels like a copy-paste job of Die Hard 1. Even though, yes, it was adapted from this story about, uh, you know, an airport and a, a someone trying to save, I think it was their daughter in the original version and not the wife, but whatever. It was called 58 Minutes and it was like a kind of a, a real-time kind of story. But beat for beat. It's the same fucking thing that happens in Die Hard that happens again in Die Hard 2. And that's frustrating. It's like you could do more. And I like that they raise the stakes. And I like that these terrorists have a political agenda. And like, yeah, there's the thing about maybe it's for the money at the end. But I kind of like to think that that's not their real motivation. I like to think that they're in it because they believe in some cause. I'm believing this because I don't know because the movie doesn't tell me at all what these characters' motivations are. But then also to your point, James, about how John McClane is famous now, yeah, lean into that. Maybe now, two years after Nakatomi Plaza, John McClane is an anti-terrorism agent. Now that the terrorists, the, the bad guys in this movie, have upped their game, well, maybe John McClane's upped his game. And maybe he is more of an authority. And you can still have him be an underdog and have him have people who don't believe him and all that shit. That's fine. But they don't do anything with that. And... In the, the first movie, there's the, the wisecracking uh, limo driver. And in this movie, there's the wisecracking janitor. And it's like, yeah, you're just doing the same thing. In the, in the first movie, the coke guy gets killed. In this movie, the airplane full of passengers gets killed. It's just 
so so much of it feels recycled and it's really really frustrating oh down to the ending the ending is exactly the fucking same at the end of die hard one john and holly are driven away by argyle the limo driver while let it snow plays in die hard 2 they are driven away by the janitor while let it snow plays they use the same fucking song they're still being <laughs> driven away in the snow while let it snow plays and let it snow is great because it's a christmas song and these are christmas movies uh but um <laughs> it's just it all feels really fucking recycled and that to me is why this movie doesn't stand the test of time because it's just like Die Hard, but a less good version. And so why would I ever choose to watch Die Hard 2 when I could just watch Die Hard 1, which is the same basic thing, but better. So Die Hard 2 does not stand the test of time. Live Free or Die Hard also does not stand the test of time. I said before, it's the best title in the franchise. Uh, it's also far and away, hands down, the okayest movie in the franchise. It's not dog shit. A good day to die hard is dog shit. Powerfully bad. It's not just a bad die hard movie. It's a terrible fucking movie. It is Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull level bad. Maybe worse. I don't know. I never want to see it again. It hurt my brain watching this character who I loved in such a fucking awful movie. Never watch it. Never. You, you said you haven't seen it, right, James? I have not seen it, and I purposely will not. And, you know, out of respect to Bruce Willis, I probably won't. Good. You you have made the right call. Have either of you guys seen it? No, but to annoy you, I will. <laughs> uh, you are cutting off your nose to spite your face. Sure. Yep. If, I, if I have seen it, it, I have no memory of it. Which means it's probably terrible. Does yeah. it take place in Russia? Yes. I um, think I did see it. Okay, yeah, and there's like a whole thing where they get to uh, Chernobyl, and for some reason, uh, John McClane's like, hold on a second, I think I can take off my helmet. And then he does, and he's like, yep, it's safe, and then that's the end of it. It's like, what the fuck? It's the only he died thing. of radiation poisoning? No, everything's fine. Um, it's <laughs> so goddamn fucking stupid. Um, the plot holes, the inconsistencies, just the really fucking stupid shit that happens in this movie heard it a lot and i agree with you darren the whole core idea of cyber terrorism our nation's infrastructure being so vulnerable that does stand the test of time it's 2023 anytime i use a government website it fucking sucks like it's the worst i can believe it i can believe that all of these systems are vulnerable and that's frustrating and it's scary but all of the execution of this movie is just frustrating and it's not dog shit. It's not as terrible as the fifth one. It's maybe even better than Die Hard 2, but it's going to be a no for me. I think you don't need to watch this movie again. Um, while we were talking about the poorly described motivations of these characters, they're really focused on killing Farrell, uh, Justin Long's character. Why? He's a loose end. I get it. They used his code, and that's part of their plot is to tie up the loose ends and kill all these hackers. That's how the movie begins. Okay, neat. They go to too much trouble. If they had just said, hey, we tried to kill this guy and he got away, oops, then that would have made a lot more sense for their plot and then none of the stuff would have happened. It's frustrating how stupid so much of it is. <laughs> There's one thing I actually meant to ask you, Darren. What did you think about the treatment of the FBI in uh, that? So it gets, it, what's interesting is it gets better. It, as much as McLean goes from every man to clown, Law enforcement, the the cops and the FBI goes from clown to actually quite competent uh, in all aspects of, of especially the last one. I mean, the deputy 
director, I think, it, I'm not sure his name, he's good. He's like a good character. He's competent. He knows what he's doing. So I, I thought that was one of the positives of it. I did think that they were really stupid in one thing and that they're like, who could possibly do this? And they forgot about the guy that designed the system that they recently shit-canned and crucified. Yeah. Yeah, that, you know, it's, it's the obvious solution is the one you most overlook, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> but, but then also to that point, there's like these two other guys who are not with the FBI. They're with, I forget what. NSA. Okay, yeah, NSA. Yeah. And they're like kind of whispering over in the corner of like, oh, yeah, they're going to Woodlawn. Yeah, we know exactly why they, uh, they're going to Woodlawn. They're going to steal the financial data. Do something about <laughs> it. You guys work for the NSA. You know people at DOD or DOJ or some other three-letter acronym. Do fucking something. They do nothing. They don't tell the FBI and they get in the way. But like, why? Yeah, It's just like the one good FBI agent who's like, oh, we have to go to Woodlawn now. And then by the time they get going, they're, the bad guys are already gone. Okay, fine. I believe that. But like, why is the entire might of the United States government not converging on this place that they know is the target? It's true. It's true. Uh, so, yeah, I can't defend it wholly, but gone are the clownish lines. That, to me, it's so much of an improvement over the original Die Hard because you don't have those stupid, oh, I can accept 25% hostages. Uh, yeah. That stuff's gone. Right. You know what? Uh, going back to stupid lines in a different way, in Die Hard... The first movie, there's a lot of like quips and one-liners that McLean says to himself, and it's fine. I think it's okay. He's just, you know, he's going through this trauma and he's kind of amusing himself. And apparently he did some research with real cops and that's how real cops talk in tense situations. Okay, I buy that. In Die Hard 2, it's way over the top. There's mm -hmm. too many one-liners and zingers that he's saying for an audience of none. It's like, uh, that's frustrating. Uh, live Free or Die Hard, he's talking to another person, so that kind of makes it more okay. Hence the movie being so okay. But next week, we're going to come back and do one more Die Hard movie, Die Hard with a Vengeance. I really felt like this movie deserved its own separate episode, not to be combined. I remember loving it when I first saw it. I don't know how well it stands up, but we will find out together next week as we wrap up our Die Hard trilogy of episodes. Dom and Darren, thank you for coming back, and you're going to come back one more time, right? Because I have no choice. Try to stop me. Damn right, and I will not. <laughs> uh, guys, we want to hear from you. We are at Tested Time Pod on Facebook, X, Instagram, and Threads. This is our last episode of 2023. That's pretty cool. Uh, we'll see you next year, everybody. Bye. Bye.